0: like I said, we are in our series, Church Why Bother? And this morning, we get to ask the question, what does it look like to finish well? We're in the last part of our series, in the last part of 1 Timothy 6, where we're looking at what it means to finish well. And I want to ask you, how would you define wealth? How would you actually look and say, this is wealth? How would you define that? Is it based upon your net worth, lumping all of your financial assets together, whether it's your house, your, your car, your truck, your, your bank account, and putting that all together, and that's defining wealth? Is it determined by your annual salary, what you make per year, or is it based upon your uh, residence in the, the highest tax bracket? What defines wealth? What is it that we look at as wealth in the world today? Man, there are many different ways for us to calculate Uh, true financial wealth, I think, but maybe a better question this morning is a bit more personal. Would you consider yourself wealthy? When you look at your life, would you consider yourself wealthy? Better yet, would you consider your neighbor wealthy? When you look at your neighbor or, or the person down the street, would you consider them wealthy? I think a lot of times we compare ourselves to people, right? We get into comparison to where we actually look at others and we're like, man, they have all of this and I don't, so they're more wealthy than I am. I'm not. Or maybe we look at ourselves and say, they don't have all of this and I'm more wealthy than they are. Or maybe we look at what they have and we say, man, I would like that. I I would really love to have that truck or I would really love to have that sports car or, or whatever it may be. But we look at people, we compare ourselves to each other. According to an article in U.S. News and World Report, there are many factors that influence the perception of wealth. One financial advisor told the news source that comparison is the thief of joy. Set a goal that will make you happy. Stop worrying about what your neighbor's doing. Well, that's definitely something that we can take to heart. It's definitely something that we could actually learn from and maybe even tribe. It's a little more complicated than that, right? It's difficult for us to put that into practice. It's difficult for us to actually grab onto that because the truth is, is that we actually covet, right? I think everybody in this room, in some small way, we actually covet whether we think we do or we don't. We look at things and we're like, man, I wish I had that. We always long for a little bit more than we actually have. And the truth is, is it's easy for people to make an idol of money and wealth, isn't it? It's easy for us to look at money and wealth and to make that an idol in our lives when we don't maybe even realize we're doing it. And this is why Paul offers Timothy this counsel where he says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. See, this love of money and the accumulation of wealth has caused temptation within the human heart since the beginning of currency. It's nothing new. So the Apostle Paul addresses this issue head-on in today's text, calling God's people to view money differently than the world. And this is so important. Um, It's super important to uh, the faithfulness of the followers of Jesus Christ in the first century, that he gives God's people multiple charges to avoid the temptation and to seek something far greater true life, right? Throughout our series, Church Why Bother, like I said, we're in week 10 of this, part 10, and uh, we've been looking at, again, the, the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy. Timothy was there in Ephesus. He was the pastor there that Paul had left him there, and he's teaching the, the people in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and running that, and Paul is trying to help him and encourage him and walk him through what it looks, to, looks like to be a pastor in there and, and trying to just walk him through all of these different things that we've looked at over the weeks, and Paul He concludes his letter, he addresses ways that false teachers were seeking to lead God's people astray by attracting the priority of financial gain to godly giving or godly living. And so Paul encourages Timothy to lead the believers in Ephesus by offering three specific ways that we're going to look at today that they can walk in faithfulness. So let's read in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Last week, we, we read verse 1 and 2. We looked at that and what it meant to be, uh, have authority. We pick right back up in verse 3, and it says this, "...if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching um, that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words." which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The first thing that Paul shows us is the, the way Christ followers can finish well is to keep yourself from pride and foolish controversy. We have to keep ourselves from pride in foolish controversy. Again, Paul's warning against false teaching, against false doctrine here. It was something that was happening in that time. And there's a, a rhythm throughout First Timothy, that uh, a huge emphasis that Paul puts on this false doctrine. And obviously there was a lot of this going on in the church of Ephesus and false teachers. It says that who had devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which we saw weeks ago. These people were teaching false doctrine that didn't line up with the Word of God. And Paul again warns against this. And so he focuses on three things in verses 3 through 5. Their teaching, their character, and their corruption, right? He says right there, "...if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness." He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, this is meaning that it's a different doctrine from the Word of God. It's not what they're they're supposed to be teaching. And then he goes on to their character, that he's puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing, that he doesn't understand anything. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Anybody know someone like that? Someone that's just willing to argue with you or someone that just wants to quarrel. They have this, this like drive to come and quarrel with you and, and to have controversy in their life. He addresses their character. And then third, he addresses their corruption if this happens, right? It says, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among men or among people who are depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth. And then he says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That they would actually look godly in the way that they're teaching and the way that they're presenting to gain something, right? To gain a status. And so he's addressing their teaching, the character, and the corruption. And, and one writer puts it this way. Healthy Christianity focuses on Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises through his atoning death, resurrection, and ascension. It lifts up Jesus as the perfect second Adam. It lifts, up, uh, lifts him up as the son of Abraham. It lifts him up as the true Israel. It lifts him up as the ultimate son of David. It lifts him up as the Lamb of God. It lifts him up as Redeemer and Savior. It lifts him up as the true temple. It lifts him up as the Alpha... And Omega, it glories in Him as our only hope in life and death. See, what it does is it it focuses on Christ as our only hope and our Savior. That's what the gospel does. That's what the Word of God does, and that's the correct teaching. What, what, What does Paul say to Timothy in verse 20 and 21, if we skip down? He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, uh, or sorry, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. He's telling Timothy, he's saying, hey, you need to protect this. You actually need to protect this doctrine. Like, don't let anybody take it from you. This is what is true. Make sure you hold it tight. As he's done throughout his letter, Paul continues to impress upon Timothy the importance of sound doctrine. See, if someone desires to preach and teach ideas that veer off from the word of Jesus, that run contrary to the word of God, then they have an unhealthy craving for controversy, right? They're just trying to create controversy. They they desire drama more than godliness. And John Calvin describes these teachers... With directness, he says this. For godly teaching is only consistent with godliness if it makes us reverence the worship or worship reverence and worship God, if it builds up our faith, and if it trains us in patience and humility and in all the duties of love. No matter what kind of display some teaching may give, it is not sound instruction unless it benefits its hearers. He's saying No matter, like if you put on a great production, you you teach well and, and you do all these things, doesn't matter if it's not sound doctrine, if it's not benefiting the hearers, then it's not worth it. It's false. See, when a community of faith is in controversy or quarrels or dissension or slander or if it's in constant friction with each other, There's no benefit to the individual believers, right? There's no benefit to the actual church or the body of Christ. None of these build up the believer's faith or strengthen a community of faith. None of these actually benefit or help. And this is why Paul writes with confidence and conviction that these people are depraved in mind and and depraved of the truth. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, They're delusional. See, a way of stirring up controversial ideas in this day and age is found in in digital marketing, right? The strategies in in digital marketing called clickbait, right? They bait you, you click on it, and then they got you, right? Right? I mean, if you look on Facebook long enough or any social media or even the Internet, they actually give you these little phrases that, that are like, oh, man, here's a three-step diet that's never been discovered before. And then you're like, oh, well, I need a diet, so click, right? Oh, you can build, you know, your muscle and this and that. So you click on it, and then you're going down this rabbit trail, and they're trying to preach to you the truth, even though it's not true, maybe. And they're trying to give you some three-step process, Right? Or you won't believe what happened after, and then you click on it. You took the bait. And now they have your full attention. You're fully engaged in what they actually want to show you or, or make you believe, right? And it's basically deceiving. See, these tactics, they've been around for far longer than the Internet has. And as believers, the truth is we should be known by words of truth in words of godliness. Whether you lead a family, whether you lead a small group, whether you lead in kids' ministry, you lead in student ministry, or whether you lead uh, outside of the church, it doesn't matter whether you just want to go to work and you want to live out your faith in your workplace and you just want to be seen as a believer, right? Your words should point people to Christ and towards godly living. In the way you act, in the way you speak, they should all point towards godly living. Living and point towards Christ. I think it's very easy for us to discuss political movements, right, or conspiracy theories. I mean, I've been guilty of it. I hear a conspiracy theory, and I'm like, that actually, that holds some weight. You might be right. You know, you never know. Have you ever walked through like? The, the actual, uh, um, I remember as a kid walking through the aisle at the grocery store, and you see those magazines that say, like, aliens found. And you're like, and they got all these things. And you start looking at it like, whoa, is that true? Like, it must be, right? Why would they even print it? But as believers, as God's people, we should strive for, for humility and godliness. When we communicate to others, we have to do that. The words that we use, I don't think we understand. The words that we use, the, the the way we talk, carry weight and power. And so we should strive to build up each other in the truth rather than wasting our time on these things that don't really matter, right? And Paul says it this way when he wrote to the Church of Ephesus directly. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as a or only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Have you ever had someone evaluate you? Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe you were in a a speech class and you got evaluated on how you spoke. Or maybe uh, you came to me and you evaluated me and you were like, John, you need to work on these things. Whatever it may be. But have you ever been evaluated? Like, have you ever had someone truly evaluate you in your life? Has it been your wife or your kids? I would encourage you. Ask your wife to evaluate you. She'll be honest. But ask your husband. Ask your kids to evaluate you. How do you act? Who are you as a person? Ask them these things. Is what I say believable and trustworthy? Not just believable. Because I can tell you a lot of things that are believable, and you might believe them, but are they trustworthy? Are the things that you're talking about, are the things that you actually say, believable and trustworthy? Ask him, who who does my speech emphasize, myself or Jesus? Am I constantly building myself up? Am I constantly talking about myself and what great accomplishments I have? Or or does my speech point people to Jesus? Ask him, does what I say encourage Christ-centered, godly living? When I talk to people, does it actually encourage them to actually live out a life that that God would be honored in? Do we actually do that? Are, Are others encouraged by what I teach or say? Or does it discourage them? Does it bring them down? See, we must keep ourselves from pride and foolish controversy. Moving on the second way that believers walk in faithfulness. And finish well is when we avoid the snare of discontentment and wealth. If we continue in verse 6, it says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many uh, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then if we look down to verse 17, it says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, again, he's saying charge them not to be haughty, Now, Paul's words in this portion of the text are some of the most quoted or some of the most referenced in all of Scripture. But unfortunately, a lot of times when we look at this passage, a lot of times when people talk about this passage, it's actually misquoted. Paul here begins to talk about the love of money. If you notice here, he doesn't say that money is bad, right? Money can be used to buy things that you need. It's needed to to buy food. It's needed to buy clothing, right? Right? It's needed to buy a house or a car. Money can be used for, for going on a vacation. The, the, all of these things are great things, right? Money is not bad. Money is actually a good thing. But what does he say here? It's not that money's the root of all evil, it's that the love of money is the root of all evil. That's the primary issue here. The question is is money become an object of your worship? Has money captured your heart? Where do your affections lie? Paul wants Timothy and all Christ followers and anyone really who reads this text to know that contentment is of far greater value than money. See, contentment is not based on what you have or what you don't have. When we're actually content, I tell my kids this all the time, they're like, oh, that's not enough ice cream, right? I need more. And I'm like, be content with what you have, right? Contentment is is not that we have more or less. Paul challenges his readers to consider something. Consider the temporary fulfillment of material things. In verse 6, he says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, nobody's taken anything with them when they die. Nobody brought anything into this world. Are things bad to have? No. I'm not telling you to go home, sell all of your possessions. We're not taking anything with us. So go ahead and give it, to, give it away and give it all away. That's not what I'm saying here. But what do those material possessions mean to us? What does money mean to us? Instead, contentment is found in inner things like peace with God, assurance of salvation, and deep-seated joy. See, these things come from a person who knows God through faith in his Son, Jesus. That in his Son, Jesus, we actually are content with all things, whether rich or poor. I love how Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and, and the body more than clothing? Then we see in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be ten- content with what we have in Jesus Christ, no matter what material possessions we have on this earth. We're called as believers to be content with what God has provided in speech, in action, and in your leadership. See whether you're poor or wealthy. The trouble that believers run into when we lack contentment is ultimately a lack of humility. We allow pride to get in, right? We believe that we deserve more financial resources or maybe we we believe God owes us something. We pridefully push aside God's sovereign provisions and, and seek to take control of our means, right? And what this reveals is a heart that has money as an idol or, or material possessions as an idol. And remember, money isn't the problem, right? It's the love of money that causes men to wander. Obviously, we don't take anything with us. We don't take cash. We don't take vehicles. We don't take houses or collectibles, nothing, right? Yet the yearning for world possessions and stuff is constant temptation. I know for me, like, it's a temptation to me. I'm always like, man, if I had an extra dollar, I could get that. If I had an extra $100, I could actually get that. If I had an extra $1,000, man, I could really get that, right? You see those things and you want them. According to Forbes magazine article from 2017, Americans are exposed to more than 4,000 ads each day telling us that we need more stuff some as high as 10,000. And that was 2017. Imagine now in 2023 how the world tells us that we need more stuff to be content. So my question is, is, what gets your time? I think the easiest way we can look at this, the way we can guard against a lust for wealth or that we can seek contentment, Right? is by actively evaluating our lives. We have to actually look. If we look at at our calendar or or who we are as a family, what do we do? What do we do on Saturdays? What what do we do um, as a family after work? Obviously, we all have jobs. We all have careers. So that takes a good chunk of our time. But man, if we're just trying to make the extra buck or, or man, we, we neglect our family or we neglect what, what God's calling us to just to make an extra buck because Saturday I can get in overtime and, and it's maybe something that we need, but is it or is it something that we want? It's just we have to evaluate that, right? We have to look at that. Is it something that we have to do to provide for our family? That's fine. But if it's something that we're just trying to get an extra dollar because the love of money creeps in in certain ways and we don't even know it. We invest in what we love. Where are you investing your time? The third way that believers can walk in faithfulness and finish well is when we pursue the life and light of the Lord Jesus. If we pick up in verse 11, it says this, But as for you, O man of God... "'Flee these things. "'Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, "'steadfastness, gentleness. "'Fight the good fight of the faith. "'Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called "'and about which you made the good confession "'in the presence of many witnesses. "'I charge you in the presence of God "'who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, "'who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate "'made the good confession.'" to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Man, if you look at that, Paul set a pretty high bar for Timothy, right? He set a pretty high bar for us. He begins by affirming Timothy of his standing as a man of faith, right? But not any man of faith. He uses the name. Uh, he, was only, he only used this name uh, several times in the Old Testament, but he uses this, this name, man of God. Not man of faith, man of God. This is a high title here. It was used of Moses in Deuteronomy. It was used as God's messenger to Eli in 1 Samuel. It was used for for Samuel himself. We see this this title of of man of God to encourage Timothy. And he's encouraging him to live as God's man to lead the believers in Ephesus. Be a man of God, Timothy. Timothy. And to do this, he's got to protect himself against false teaching and instead turning his attention to the list of godly virtues and what are these virtues that he gives us. He tells Timothy this, he says, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, right? He says, man, this righteousness and godliness that they lead into, if you control yourself, you, you'll become righteous and, and, and godly and you strive after those things, then faith, love, and steadfastness will actually come out of those things and you'll, all of a sudden now it'll drive you into gentleness. And these are the virtues that you're supposed to have, Timothy. Paul then encourages Timothy with a, a series of exhortations for the battle that lies ahead. He uses this battle language, right? In verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. This is a a war or competition language to remind Timothy to fight for truth. He's got to fight for it, right? Verse 13, 14, the public confession of Jesus before Pilate sets the example for Timothy and, and all believers to offer a good, strong public confession, even in the face of opposition, The truth is, is that as we go through life, we're going to face opposition in the same way he's telling Timothy, get ready, fight the good fight, be ready to fight it. You're going to face opposition. And then in verse 16 or 15 through 16, again, we see Paul's charging Timothy to remember that everything he does is in view of the second coming of Jesus. See, Paul wants Timothy to take hold of the eternal reality of the faith that he has professed, right? And to live boldly against the false teachers and those who seek financial gain. These are not the the way of godly leaders. He's saying, take hold, protect yourself, be careful. See, it's the hope we have in Christ that spurs us to live a godly life, right? Hopefully it's the hope that every believer has that it's in Christ, in in the eternal life that he gives us through his Son, that we actually can go out and live a godly life. Paul wants him to keep his eyes on the end prize, the ultimate goal and finish line. Have you ever done something hard? You ever done something like, man, this was really hard, whether it's a race, whether it's something in your life that you can remember that was really hard and, and you were looking at the finish line. Maybe, uh, you know, I often think, I'm like, man, what would it be like to climb Mount Everest, right? To go up and, and these people that do that and, and they're trying to climb and what's the end prize? It, there's, it's not easy. There's trials, there's tribulation, there's, there's things that are hard to get these things done and, and, and they have to reach the finish line. They try to get to the finish line to get to the top, right? Right? The only way I can put this in perspective for me is like, man, I'm a hunter and and I love to hunt. And so for me every year I start in the in the summer and I start chasing these big deer and I'm watching them grow and I'm like all about it and I want I want to uh, go and hunt the big deer I don't want I don't want something small I want a big deer right and so they're super smart and so I spend a lot of time out in the woods and and I sit for sometimes days and I don't see anything and it's trying and it's hard and I'm like freezing cold and I'm like man is this worth it sometimes and there's doubt in my head and then all of a sudden you have an encounter with them and you're like okay I'm gonna get him and then he He moves on and then you don't get him. And why do we do that? Because we're crazy, right? All the, the hunting widows in here are like, yeah, that's true. But I do that for the end goal, right? For the prize. This is similar to what Paul's doing here. He's highlighting false teachers, acknowledging the lure of financial temptation, See, we always have to have a clear picture of the finish line. And that finish line is eternal life with Christ, right? See, challenges will come along the way. Challenges are going to come. Trials are going to come. The temptation to give up is going to come. We're going to be overcome by outside voices sometimes. Yet the finish line is the ultimate goal. So how are we doing this? Do you get discouraged by challenges and trials? Maybe it's a a serious uh, medical diagnosis or the loss of a career or job, or or maybe it's some trials within the family and maybe marriage or or whatever that looks like, and it's just like, man, I'm ready to give up. I don't want to discount these things because they're real, right? They feel real. There, there's things that come along and trials that you walk through and you're like, man, God, what is happening here? And the voices come in, just give up. Forget it. You don't need it. They're real things. And these things may slow our progress, but the truth is, is they should never deter our journey. They should never take us off the path and our journey because it's in Jesus, it's in the gospel, that believers have this hope. Amen? It's in the gospel. It's in knowing that I have a Savior, that God sent His only Son to die on the cross for me so that I might have eternal life through the free gift of salvation that I can have contentment in what I have here on earth. I love Hebrews 12, too. It says this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. The truth is is that through faith in Jesus, believers should continue to live and serve in view of eternal life. See, we'll finish well when we focus our lives on pursuing Jesus and him alone. As the band comes, we're going to sing a song. And I love this song because there's a phrase in there, that says, if more of you means less of me, take everything. When we think about that phrase and we sing it, do we truly mean it? Do we truly mean that, man, God, if, if more of you, if I can have more of you, God, and it means less of me, am I willing to give that up? Take everything. We're going to sing that now. If you would stand with me and pray. Father God, again, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. That's our guide, our map in life. Lord, as as Paul's letter to Timothy has so much truth to it and so much Lessons that we can learn, God, I pray today that we would be content in the Father, content in your Son. Lord, that it would be the only thing that matters to us. That God, all these worldly things, they're okay, but they're not the end goal. That God, our hearts would be focused on you and you alone. And that a people in this world, the people would see a difference in us. They would see how we're content in Jesus. Lord, if if more of you means less of me, take everything, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family.